Welcome to this new episode of Diaspora Disoriented. Today I have my friend and online activist Berfin or Berfin Max on Instagram. I'll link her um, Instagram page in the info box. And we're going to address anti-racism and the question of whether we should or we need to reclaim anti-racism. Um, but reclaim it from what specifically? Well, there's a lot of problematic influences on the anti-racist movement but specifically this new wave of uh, liberally influenced anti-racist uprisings, so to say, or uproar. And it's often not necessarily bad movements. It's actually needed movements like um, Black Lives Matter. And they've grown a bit and they eventually found their way into liberal circles. And I'd compare this whole thing to the climate movement, for example. And the content is, well, the principles are not bad at all. Uh, but the content is um, consisting, you know, to a great extent of like liberal reforms in the capitalist system. And these are made up of like small steps with small good outcomes. But how good is actually in the long run? And this is the kind of like reform or revolution question that we find in many movements. So I'd recommend reading Rosa Luxemburg and her work Reform or Revolution. And it addresses how these small good achievements can actually block, you know, long-term revolutionary radical developments because you're fixing a very broken system that is fueled by these very faults and you're fixing it just enough to keep it going and you basically silence people temporarily with seemingly good changes and the system's faults just keep deepening. So if we're talking about the climate movement, then it's stuff like individual action that we're asked to do and we neglect big corporations and their involvement. Or we introduce small reforms that actually harm people who didn't contribute a lot to the harm. For example, taxing the middle and the working class the most on, you know, carbon emissions. Meanwhile, it's the corporations again causing the most emissions. So back to the more current movements like Black Lives Matter. You know, what are the most problematic phenomena? Because, um, let's start off with social media because you're active there and it's a platform that's reaching pretty much everyone with access to social media and celebrities are using it to reach people internationally and you yourself are, as I said, active on there and you have also complained about a certain type of content creators and their approach to um, so-called anti-racism. So what are those phenomena that are problematic? Hi, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. It's my first time on a podcast. So I might be a little nervous. <laughs> um, so honestly, I don't even know where to start. During the Black Lives Matter uprising in America and the Black Lives Matter uprising in Europe, I just realized how many people who are not affected by institutional racism or police violence have no clue what true anti-racism is. I think the main issue we saw is performative activism. Um, what is performative activism? 
It's so-called activism done by people who are not really interested in the actual issue, but rather care about their um, own representation, for example, on social media. Let's, let's give you a detailed example, actually, which I endured personally with this white influencer. I think people who follow me <laughs> on social media exactly know who I'm talking about. I will not mention her name because I don't think she deserves this platform at all. Yeah. Yeah, so anyways, um, during the whole Black Lives Matter uh, debate, this person uh, put a video on her story dancing with her POC aunt. The caption was something like that she doesn't understand how people can be racist and that she always wanted black babies because they were cuter. Um, I think she even like referred to black babies as like chocolate babies. God. Super problematic. Um, and she also said like she wanted to be brown and tanned herself. I like I didn't know how to react to this whole thing. There are so many problematic things in this caption alone. But I put a statement on my story, I tagged her and I tried to explain why this whole statement is simply racist and unsensitive. Like what do you think? Like black people want to hear about your fetishization of black babies and black cultures? Nope. They're like literally systematically killed by institutions and the police. So like this is not the place to say uh, things like that, to never say things like that, actually. Like, it's just not okay. So um, she saw my story. Actually, a lot of people sent my story to her and her immediate reaction was blocking me. And she told her followers that I was bullying her, um, which is not true. I just called her out and I tried to explain why this whole statement is just racist and false. So a lot of her followers actually came onto my profile because she leaked my name and they were attacking me, saying things like, um, you're bullying this person, she's actually like an anti-racist activist and stuff like that. And <laughs> it's just so funny because um, she mentioned anti-racism like a few times in her life and people literally um saw her as this super cool uh, anti-racist activist anyways so this is funny because like whenever you call white people out on their racism they will immediately say they're being bullied and this is this is like this is very dangerous because like she basically made it look like as if i'm this very aggressive POC woman, which is already a stereotype, especially on black women. Like they're always represented as aggressive and very emotional, which is like super, super, super um, just dangerous to say. So anyways, like she blocked everyone, including uh, black indigenous people of color who tried to educate her and criticized her. She didn't care. Like she didn't care at all. And a few days later, which like this is this is one thing that pissed me off so badly. A few days later, she made a post about listening to black indigenous people of color and shared the podcast um, Exit Racism by Tupoka Ogeta. And of course, we felt stupid. Like um, behind the scenes, she's blocking people of color and not listening and is not listening to them. And like in public, like she's acting like this. Angel, who is like apparently super anti-racist. Yeah, like this is this is like some this is a phenomena I witnessed a lot on social media during this whole thing. Like people who have no clue about anti-racism suddenly posting Black Lives Matter, but like 
in certain colors and aesthetics so that it would f- like fit their feet or something like that. Like this is performative activism. You don't care about the cause. You don't. Um, you just do it because you don't want to be called out or like you just want, you, you don't want like the negative attention on you. Okay, thank you. Um, it's very important that you address these things because this movement, you know, it grew and a natural consequence of any movement growing and reaching people that don't have any prior experience and maybe don't know about the sensitivities of those people is that they, out of ignorance, just do these things. But then it's also their duty, if they're going to take part in that movement, to inform themselves what is permissible, what can they not do. And I've noticed a lot of problematic and also insensitive behavior during demonstrations. For example, we had the largest, um, the third largest, I think, demonstration in the last 20 years in Vienna, the yeah. Black Lives Matter demonstration. And there were a lot of people that obviously did not have any prior experience with anti-racism. For example, I felt uncomfortable seeing groups of white drummers. There were multiple groups of white drummers with like dreadlocks, which is deemed cultural appropriation by many. Uh, just playing African drums and like overshadowing speakers with actual like substantial contributions at the BLM demos or people with beer and like generally loud music as if we weren't mourning the death of somebody that was brutally murdered by the police. And I've also seen groups who are racist towards other people of color or towards religious minorities and refuse to address that or to handle their anti-racism join these movements so I'd put them in the category of performative activists again maybe trying to give themselves a good reputation just Mm -hmm. like big corporations right now I mean we just had pride month um they were putting rainbows all over and still not paying workers in South Asia and sweatshops and elsewhere and you know this is extremely hypocritical and also yeah the same corporations embracing black lives matter all of a sudden and again not doing anything for black lives or for brown lives um working for them and yeah for me to go back to these groups um you have to be anti-racist universally or else your anti-racism is not valid in my eyes but these groups specifically they're very active in certain left-wing movements so i'll come back to them later But now to, you know, this whole offline activism, what are the most problematic behaviors you think? What should people avoid? And what bothered you the most? And do you have some, like, maybe broad ethical guidelines that people should adhere to when joining such movements? I feel like regarding to Black Lives Matter specifically, I think it's not only important, but but it's necessary to listen to black people and to black people only. This is their social justice fight. And as allies, we have to follow their lead and listen. When I personally helped organizing a Black Lives Matter protest in Vienna, the movement was led by black women and black non-binary people. As non-black people, we were there as allies. We listened and tried implementing their ideas into reality. Um, I think there are two main issues that come into my mind when you ask me that question. Um, first of all, I think we have an issue with non-black people being super violent when protesting, destroying small businesses, businesses of black people, and simply bringing black people into danger with their actions. I saw a video on Twitter, actually, of this white girl yelling at this police officer, like being super aggressive, spitting at him, I think. And a black man tried to hold her back, tried to calm her down. Next thing that happened was the black man was arrested. 
So nothing happened to the white girl. So this is like a perfect example. Like this is not good allyship. Like with your actions, you're bringing you're bringing black people into danger. So I think the ethical guideline here is just simply listen to people who are affected in this context. So if it's Black Lives Matter, listen to black people and like follow their lead. If it's Muslim people, listen to Muslim people, listen to hijabi women, listen to their struggle. And another thing that bothered me a lot, which happened to be in Vienna, and I think probably in, on other parts of the world as well, um, was how certain non-black people acted at the protests. Um, I actually talked to a lot of black people too, and uh, they said the same thing. The Austrian protest culture is weird in general, in my opinion. <laughs> like, it's a bunch of leftists drinking beer, smoking weed, while yelling a few slogans about an issue and then just walking straight home or to the club. Black joy is a form of protest, but it's not white people's place to twerk, dance, literally party at a Black Lives Matter protest. And I saw that a lot in Vienna. I feel like it was literally more like a party than a protest. Like, I don't know what there is to like party about, especially as non-black people. Like, it's black people's protest. They can do whatever they want, especially like within black culture, like dancing and music is like a main part for them. But like people are literally dying. They're being systematically killed. Like there's no room for non-black people partying at a Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah. Um, and one further comment I'd like to add since we're talking about very recent movements for me someone with a palestinian background is that currently you know the um the israeli government announced the annexation of the west bank on july 1st and it doesn't matter how much has been annexed since then because this is a continuous form of ethnic cleansing and apartheid ethnic cleansing well that's a dodgy uh, term i don't actually like to use because cleansing is like you're cleansing some sort of dirt but yeah so you're, it's a continuous form of apartheid and systematic discrimination of Palestinians and expulsion. But there have been some people who are trying to speak out against this who come from like a liberal Zionist background and they're trying to take up the narrative. And sadly, people, Palestinians as well, share these statements. And it's interesting because these people, some of them are not just liberal Zionists, but also hardcore Zionists. And they're claiming that they oppose the annexation but then they limit the discourse to the annexation and sort of try to acknowledge the Oslo borders, which is something that most Palestinians oppose. It was, um, it's still settler colonialism. So they're taking over this discourse and people are echoing that. And it's important to go back to the people who whose fight that is and to not erase their struggle and, and um, you know, with like liberal terminology and so yeah it's just an example of another liberal infiltrated movement um that should be reclaimed by the people actually fighting for this so uh Befin, you having a kurdish background and coming from you know the kurdish activist scene have of course heard or witnessed of the recent pro-kurdistan demonstrations um organized mainly by women and the counter-protests or actually the attacks of the Turkish Grey Wolves in Favoriten, which is Vienna's 10th district, and it's home to a lot of uh, workers with a migrant background. And can you maybe briefly tell us how the protests were sparked off, um, what you're fighting for, 
And what happened since and how it all developed? Um, so at the beginning, it was just simply Kurdish women fighting or like bringing awareness to women's rights in Vienna Favoriten, as you said. I think that was like on a Wednesday, I'm not sure. But it was basically attacked by the Grey Wolves, which is like um, there are a fascist group. They come from Turkey and they're sometimes even like no not even sometimes like they're 100 funded by the turkish government and other organizations in vienna actually so these women got basically attacked uh, on that protest with knives and other weapons like there was even this interview of this woman she felt super threatened she was super anxious about this whole thing that happened and it's, it was just super scary and they fled to the occupied house it's called ekaha And a few minutes later, a mob uh, of about like 200 to 300 people just surrounded the whole house, tried burning it down, attacked it and wanted to physically hurt these protesters and women. I think it's super important to point out that this is not a fight between Turks and Kurds. It's a fight about it's a fight between anti-fascists and fascists. It's a fight between anti-democrats and Democrats, not in the American context, by the way. <laughs> Not like Democrats and Republicans, um, just people who stand up for democracy. Yeah, so I actually personally witnessed everything. I live close by to the Ikaha. Um, I was there myself. There were a lot of attacks for like three or four days straight. It was very scary. I didn't feel safe in Vienna, in my hometown, basically. And it just left me with the question, like, how is this happening in the middle of Europe? Like... My parents, the parents of other Kurdish people, came to Europe with the idea or the wish to feel safe, to be safer than in Turkey. And this whole like literal genocide and silencing of Kurdish people, this anti-Kurdish racism is still continuing to this day. So that's what we saw a few weeks ago, or like one week ago, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's what happened. All right, so to bring it back to the matter of like dodgy anti-racist groups from white and or liberal pseudo-leftist circles, those protests were, as you said, were first led by Kurdish women and Kurdish women organizations and, you know, anti-fascist organizations, but then increasingly more by self-proclaimed um, majority white anti-fascists. Yet those spaces, and here I'm talking about the context of German-speaking countries, uh, specifically Germany and Austria, are dominated by so-called anti-Deutsche, or literally translated to uh, anti-Germans, who present themselves in a very leftist way, and they have a lot of anarchists, so they use that terminology, uh, that leftist terminology, but their content is problematic, to say the least. Um, and they have history supporting imperialist wars and being against indigenous liberation movements, such as the Palestinian struggle, which is a timeless topic for them. They constantly address it, and... Their use of um, the, their anti-Palestinian rhetoric is very racist and it perpetuates many stereotypes against the colonized peoples of West Asia. So that would be the racist aspect. And then there's the Islamophobic aspect and they generalize and, and use, that, use their Islamophobia against all Palestinians. They don't differentiate. And they enforce a Eurocentric Orientalist understanding of political concerns in the region. So they still express selective empathy with some groups in the region, like recently Kurds, 
and they started joining those Kurdish protests and practically leading them, some of the protests at least. So do you think the support and the support of mainstream white liberals for Kurdish rights is conditional so that they would not support Kurdish people if, for example, they were not as um, secular, I'd say, or did not stand out as as a secular people compared to neighboring ethnic groups? Um, and do you believe that they, for example, would have supported Kurds in their struggle if it was a hundred years ago and the main enemy was Western colonizers and they were fighting alongside, let's say, their Arab brothers and sisters or, you know, again, neighboring peoples that they do not support nowadays? And how much do you think, how much of the support stems from Kurdish fetishization and do you want to address that, maybe? Would they have supported us 100 years ago? Honestly, I don't know. And I believe I, I don't think so. Because I think, as you said, like um, we have a huge issue within the leftist movement, especially in Austria and in Germany, regarding fetishization of Kurdish of the Kurdish fight in general and also like um, Kurdish female fighters. This type of fetishization, sexualization, objectification, is a result of patriarchy and just proves once again that leftists are not immune to sexism and the patriarchy. Especially leftist men need to self-reflect on that a lot. I actually went through some YouTube comments. The videos were about like Kurdish female fighters and the Kurdish fight. And I wanted to give you like some examples of like this whole fetishization thing. Okay, let me read them. So one person said, that's sad that she died. She was hot, though. Dude, the Kurdish women are hot. They fight well, and they're very loyal. She is beautiful, but she's a terrorist, and she should die. Wow, what a natural beauty. Plus bravery. All women should be like that. Beautiful women and no makeup. Wow, perfect. Very sad news, a very young, beautiful lady died. My thoughts and prayers go out to her family. So sad, she was absolutely gorgeous. God, it's getting worse. Yeah, it's like, like you see, like to basically summarize it, um, it's basically not focusing on the fact that these women are fighting against ISIS, but rather focusing on their beauty, their looks, their hair, whatever, their face, their body, like they're even like worse comments um, where people point out their breasts or like their body, like their figures, whatever. Um, for them, their death is sad, not because we lost someone, like we lost, not because we lost a brave human being fighting against the Islamic State, but rather we lost someone who was hot and beautiful. Yeah, like this is an issue and it drives us further away from Kurdish liberation. And in general, like if you fetishize a certain group of people, you, you're you not automatically an ally. This will not bring liberation at all. It just drives us further away from that. Yeah. All right. And there's other reasons, perhaps some people, some of those like dodgy anti-racists again might support the Kurdish uh, protests right now. And some things I noticed is that some of the people might be deflecting some of Austria's racist, that's a euphemism, um, history and, um, calling a Turkish, um, the, the Turkish gray wolves increasingly like Nazis. And there was basically one Alevi Kurdish activist who said at some point that you shouldn't call 
the Grey Wolves Nazis, they're uh, extremist fascists. But Nazis is an inaccurate thing because not all fascists are Nazis, and Nazis is more of an it's it's more applicable in the Austrian context. Like Turkish people are not Nazis, and it brings a lot of issues with that. Yeah, and um, that could that be an attempt to liberate the Austrian German people, perhaps of their past, and to like tackle the new Nazis? Because now, if if both the right wing white supremacist extremists are Nazis. As well as the the grey wolves, and they do experience some form of you know anti-Turkish racism. Of course, that does not allow anything like fascists can experience racism as well. Um, but is that maybe a form of, like liberation from that history, from that Nazi history in Austria? Um, I feel like if you look at Austrian history in general, like since the Second World War ended, Austria always tried to deny. Um, what they did within the Second World War. They always, they were a part of everything that happened. And I feel like that's a good point because um, Austria loves acting like there is no patriarchy in Austria. There is no racism in Austria. Like we don't have these issues. Other people bring those issues in. Refugees bring those issues in. Immigrants bring, the, bring those issues in. For example, when it like comes to patriarchy, we see like right wing Austrian men saying they're gonna like they're gonna kill our women, they're gonna take our women away, which is like sexist in its way. But when it comes to like racism, it's definitely like a tactic to hide the fact that Austria is racist as well. Like we have a racist system, we have an oppressive system. It's just once again focusing on immigrants and what happened is like when I looked at the news and like what Bundeskanzler Sebastian Kurz said, um, he just throw everyone in the same pot. All Turkish people are fascists. All Kurdish people are fascists. Whatever people even don't know the difference. Let's start there. Mm. The difference is important because we need to see how like what kind of history Kurdish people have, what kind of history like Turkish people have. And I think it's also very important to point out the fact that not every Turkish person is a fascist, not every Turkish person is a part of Grey Wolves, and not every Kurdish person supports the PKK, which is um, this Kurdish organization in the Middle East. And it's definitely, like coming back to your question, it's definitely a way to not only focus on other issues and ignore the fact that Austria is also racist. It's also a way to gain more voters. Um, what happened in Favoriten is, a, is perfect for parties like FPÖ or ÖVP because they're going to act like, oh, we're going to solve this problem. We're just going to send those people back or like we're going to um, protect our borders. And they won with what ha whatever happened. Yeah. Thank you for all of these examples also of, of problematic ways to join anti-racist movements because you're not inherently anti-racist with that. And that's a reminder for you to be universally anti-racist. And as you said, to, you know, listen to the people that are setting all those demands, people that you're supposed to be fighting for. I mean, why take their platform away? So back to the original question, 
do we need to reclaim anti-racism now? And if so, then reclaim it from what? Like, what should people adhere to? What should people do when joining these movements? Do we need to reclaim anti-racism? The short answer is yes. <laughs> the Okay, if I would like give you an explanation i think the general problem in this context is that people think it's okay to just not be racist but it's not it's not enough and we see how more and more uh, black indigenous people of color demand more anti-racism like active anti-racism simply being not racist will not change the current oppressive system we live in the issue we constantly face is the idea of white people thinking that them buying from black businesses for example or appropriating black or western culture is some sort of anti-racism when it's clearly not and this is definitely dangerous um this type of so-called anti-racism will not bring us liberation it will bring us actually even further away from total liberation as i said like white women saying things like oh i always wanted to have a chocolate baby is not just super problematic it's simply racist in this context we would call it positive racism a term i just learned actually but it's still racism like when you say like all black people can dance all black people have rhythm all western asian people can cook it's still racist even if even if your intentions are positive because these ideas are just stereotypes so what we need is white people to be actively anti-racist that means shutting down racist comments whenever you hear them that means having uncomfortable conversations with your parents or friends. That means self-reflecting on your own privileges and making room for marginalized people. Um, when Sister Solja, a black female author and activist, got asked what a good white person is, by her definition, she said that it's someone who understands that this is a question about power and about the question of how willing someone is to give up that power and give resources to marginalized people and i think that's a good summary of what anti-racism needs to be we need to definitely reclaim it mm -hmm. thank you for that and um i just like to stress again that you know the movement has to be radical you know just small reforms and i don't know maybe your presentation in problematic institutions um that is not going to solve anything and as the abolitionist activist ruth wilson gilmore who addressed the issue of racialized uh, or racial capitalism, especially in the in the context of the prison industrial complex. And this actually is an issue that we have outside this industrial complex and also the military industrial complex and in all governments, all institutions, um, corporations. So you need to acknowledge that racial aspect of capitalism. You need to be anti-capitalist. And also not just reduce everything to class. You know, class reductionism is an issue we have in the leftist movement. You need to be aware of how it all intersects because racism is not just, you know, prejudice towards black, indigenous and people of color, but also it's an institutional thing and it intersects with so many things, the patriarchy, everything. So, yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for this lovely so conversation. Cool. <laughs> thank you. If you want to stay updated and always listen to the newest episodes, then follow us on Instagram at diaspora underscore disorientate or on Twitter underscore disorientate. And it would help us a lot if you rated our podcast if you liked it. And thank you so much for tuning in. And till next time. Salam. Peace. <laughs> Salam. <laughs>